Turn with me, if you would, in the scriptures to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Now you're probably thinking, yeah, is it obligatory that every missionary has to preach on Matthew 28? Um, well, I, I have preached it a bunch, and I've preached it in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm going to preach it a little differently tonight than I have at many other times. Um, Okay, let's begin. Matthew 28, verse 16. Got to find my glasses here. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word Cause your word, O Lord, to sink down deeply into our hearts, open our eyes, enable us to behold wonderful things from your law, from your word, and enable us, O Lord, to be encouraged by it and to put it into practice. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you will have heard of this um, um, experiment that I'm going to mention to you, but back in the 1960s, and uh, again, in the early part of the 1970s, there was a social science researcher, I suppose he must have been a, a psychologist, social psychologist perhaps. He did some experiments on rats and mice that came to be known as the rat utopia experiments. This was printed up in Scientific American, I think in the 60s, and probably again a, a follow-up in the, in the early 1970s. Essentially what this experiment was, um, John Calhoun tried to set up just the perfect rat utopia. In other words, a, a place with every possible thing that a rat's little heart could desire. All of the best food that the rat could desire, plenty to drink, all of the most wonderful games that rats could play. And then, of course, they were free to breed as they wished. They were, they were free to, to do uh, whatever their heart desired in this rat utopia. Uh, he, he, he even uh, he quarantined them before he put them in there to make sure that there was no, no diseases that were brought into the colony or anything like that. And so you, you would think that uh, making these rats happy, fat and happy like that, uh, they would indeed experience utopia. But what actually happened is, it didn't take very long before the whole colony of rats degenerated into every kind of rat pathology that you can imagine. They, they became extremely pathological. They, many of them stopped eating completely, even though the food was right in front of them. They stopped eating and starved to death. 
Others of them became very violent and, and were constantly attacking the other rats. Uh, others of them would eat their own leg off or maim themselves in different ways. There were all kinds of, of uh, pathologies that they developed. And the end result of it all was that the, the entire colony of rats just died out. Again, it was, it, this was repeated in the 70s with mice, and this, the very same thing happened. Now, I want to suggest to you tonight that something like this rat utopia phenomenon is happening today in the Western world. And by Western world, I certainly include Latin America in that because we are seeing it in Peru in a very big way as well. And um, essentially, this, this phenomenon is something that started way back in the Enlightenment and progressed forward through the Industrial Revolution, but it really began to, to take off in a big way in the 1950s after World War II. But it wasn't until the, the mid to late 2000s at precisely the point where a bunch of Christian sociologists and Christian missions experts told us that it wasn't happening, nothing to see here, move along. Precisely at that point, this phenomenon that we're seeing all around us began to just explode on the scene. Now, what I'm talking about here when I say this phenomenon I'm talking about secularization, or what sociologists call secularization. Essentially, secularization is the thinning out or hollowing out of human community that involves a whole bunch of things, but uh, I think one of the key, one of the most important aspects of it to understand is that it leaves people without hope. It, it basically insists that all there is to human life is the material world that's in front of us, and thus there's no such thing as transcendental meaning or purpose. Any meaning or purpose that we have in our life is just what we generate uh, on, on our own. And that's what we're experiencing uh, now. It essentially involves a loss of a sense that our story or our world story has any real meaning to it or that it's actually going somewhere. And I think we've all run on to, to folks that have that, that powerful sense that they don't know what the meaning of life is. They don't know what the meaning of their life is. Now, there are lots of... Um, fruit of this that we can see all around us. And I, I don't want this to be one of those sermons that just rehearses a long litany of all the things that are bad about the world. But I'm going to do a little bit of that, so please bear with me here. Um, early last year, I think it was February or March of 2022, the CDC declared a state of emergency for, for adolescent and young, uh, young adult mental health. In this country, and we keep seeing, if you're reading the newspapers or listening to the, the news media, almost every week we're hearing another story about that, about how the mental health, especially of young people in our world, is, uh, is just declining all the time. Then we've got things like a suicide rate and um, overdose death rates that are higher than they have ever been in the history of the world. 
Then there's also things like an explosion of gender dysphoria among teenage girls. Now, just a little parenthesis here. Gender dysphoria is, you probably know this, but it's basically the idea that, that one feels very uncomfortable and, and ill at ease with the sex or the gender that they were born with, and they come to think that they are actually the opposite gender. Now, that's nothing new. We've had, I mean, that's been around since the dawn of time almost. And in fact, we've been studying it, and we have hard data on it over the past 100-plus years. And up until about last week, probably, or not long ago anyway, the researchers were were insistent that there was a very steady rate of 0.018% of all human beings experience gender dysphoria. We've always known about it. Not, not a, too big of a deal, actually. But what we're experiencing now is very different. It's different because always before, about 99% of all of those people who experienced it were males. And now the explosion is among teenage girls. Also, previously, it was always something that was experienced from the youngest age, from, from the time they were a toddler until they became adults. They, they experienced those feelings steadily. Well, that's not what's happening with the, the explosion that we're seeing now. It's happening as girls go through puberty and, and in their teenage years. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what, what is actually going on here? And another little parenthesis, there's a great book on the subject if you're interested by a woman named Abigail Schreier, uh, and the book is called Irreversible Damage. I highly recommend that book. Now, all of this, the, the CDC declaring a state of emergency for uh, adolescent and young adult mental health, the suicide and overdose rates, the gender dysphoria explosion. We've also had uh, plummeting marriage rates and birth rates across the developed world. We've known about this in Europe for a long time, but did you know that in the United States our birth rate is about 1.75? It needs to be over 2. Point, uh, it needs to be about 2.1 in order for us just to sustain our 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 culture, our community. It's far worse in Japan. In Japan, they sell more adult diapers than they do infant diapers. It's worse than that in South Korea. It's worse than that in China. It's just about as bad in Russia, and we could go on and on. And uh, this, uh, these plummeting marriage rates and birth rates are are resulting in, or at least are projected to have catastrophic social and economic effects in our world. And then, of course, another thing that we're seeing, and you've seen this no doubt as well, just uh, a deep religious decline in all of the Western world. Now, um, I, I, don't know, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, so don't quote me on them exactly, but it's something like that here in the United States we're closing something like four or five churches for every one new church that we plant. That's a serious, serious problem. And as I get around visiting uh, churches when I'm back in the States, um, it looks to me like we have an, uh, an impending demographic implosion 
among evangelical churches. All of those things are the fruits of secularization. Let me give a, a definition. This is a real technical definition of secularization. Secularization is a psychological parasite that bores a hole in your skull and eats your brain. But it doesn't eat your whole brain. It eats only the part of your brain, or we could say your soul, that is able to, to project into the future, to look into the future and lay hold of purpose and meaning. It's the part of your soul that is, that is able to have hope in the future. And that's what secularization steals from us. And that's why we're experiencing all of these crazy things that we're experiencing. Now, maybe you're saying, uh, well, preacher, no need to get all hysterical about it. You're just worked up about this because you're a preacher and a missionary. Well, it's true. I, I am a preacher and a missionary, and I don't like to see the church decline, and I don't like to see people dying without Christ in the world. So that's true. But I'm also concerned about it as a human being because all of this presages great human suffering in the world. So this is a big deal, whether one approaches it as a Christian or from some other religion or as a completely secular person. This is a big deal. But there's hope. There's good news. In the passage that we just read, the Lord Jesus gives us hope. He, in this passage, Jesus is calling his apostles, his church, and he's calling us to become part of a great epic saga. Think of something like Lord of the Rings, but in this one, Jesus is the hero. So he's calling us to be part of a great epic saga that promises great hardships and great struggles and great difficulties and trials and tribulations and epic battles as well. But it also promises freedom, satisfaction, and exquisite eternal joy in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. Jesus is calling us to experience his salvation, and then to join his team that is carrying that salvation to the world. So let's take a look at, at the, our passage here and, and think about this. I'll, hopefully I can explain this coherently. Um, I teach, a, uh, one of the, teach, the, the courses that I teach in Peru is the Gospels course, and Matthew is my favorite. I love Matthew. It, Matthew is just an exquisite piece of literary artistry. The way Matthew just weaves the Old Testament and all kinds of bits and pieces of the Old Testament and Old Testament stories, he just weaves it through the warp and woof of the whole gospel. And just to give some of the context here for, the, for our passage, Remember, this isn't the only baptism passage in the Gospel of Matthew. There is one other one that's very important. This is where we're called upon to go proclaim the Gospel to the nations and baptize and teach the nations. But in the earlier baptism passage, back in chapter 3, that's Jesus' baptism. 
And we don't have time to go into all the details, but essentially when Jesus is baptized in chapter 3, remember the story, the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is standing in the water, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And then we hear the voice from heaven who says, this is my Son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Now, what happens in the baptism, and this is what I don't have time to go into all the details on, but essentially Jesus' baptism is his anointing as prophet. He's kind of juxtaposed with John the Baptist here. It's his anointing as king. He's not yet crowned as king, but he's anointed as king here. And there's an illusion in that saying, you, this, this is my beloved son. There's a, that's almost a direct quote from Psalm 2, which is about the kingship of Jesus. And then the third thing to notice about his baptism is it's his ordination. There are all kinds of little details in the story that link it back to the ordination ritual of the priest in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is, is anointed as prophet. He's anointed as king. He's ordained as priest. He's the new priesthood for God's people. And so and so immediately after his baptism, he comes up out of the water and then he goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And so what happens then? You remember the story. The devil comes to him and the devil heard the words that the father spoke from heaven. Those words were notorious. They're alluded to later in the gospel as well. But the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you're really God's son, remember the voice said, this is my beloved son. So the devil says, well, if you're really God's son, then command these stones to be made bread. If you're really God's son, then cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And then the third of these temptations is where he's no longer actually challenging Jesus's sonship, but he's alluding back to the promise from Psalm 2. This is a little bit complicated, so put your thinking caps on and follow me here. In Psalm 2, when the Father says, uh, "This is uh, you are my son, this day have I begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. So Satan, in the first two temptations, he seizes on the question of sonship, and the, the third temptation he seizes on this promise, the Father's promise to give his son all of the nations as his inheritance. And essentially, Satan comes to Jesus and says, yeah, some father he is. He says he loves you, but he's telling you that you can't have these nations unless you go to the cross. What kind of love is that? What kind of a father would say, I'll give you your inheritance, but you've got to die a miserable death on a Roman cross first? Satan says, come with me, worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth the easy way. You won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to suffer. Just worship me, and they'll all be yours. Jesus, of course, resists that and says, get away from me, Satan. And then like Luke says in his gospel, Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. In other words, all the rest of Jesus' ministry is what, what the, this was the springboard for all of the rest of Jesus' ministry. Not only was it his ordination, his anointing, but also it was this 
moment in Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his ministry, that solidified for him, that, that emphasized to him his identity as God's beloved son in whom he was well pleased and as the one who had a great mission to perform. He's the hero in God's epic saga of how the nations will be restored, the nations will be renewed, the nations will be won. And so all of the rest of Jesus' ministry, what was it that made him so resilient and so courageous and so bold, even when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's under such intense pressure and, and he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and yet nevertheless, he stays true to the course and he goes to the cross. What enabled him to be, if I can say it this way, psychologically resilient for that? It was that he had a rock-solid sense of his identity and his mission. And then, of course, he gets to, in, in chapter 26 and 27, we have his trial, his crucifixion. And then, on the other side of the crucifixion, in our chapter here, chapter 28, is the chapter of the resurrection. He died, but the Lord, his Father, raised him from the dead three days later. And now Jesus stands before his disciples and says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice he's not talking about his authority as God. He, do, he is God, but he's talking about his authority as the new Adam in God's new creation. We'll come back to that point in, in a moment. He says, all authority has been given to me. Just now, on the basis of my resurrection, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore... I hold title to these nations now. I got them the right way. I hold title to the nations, and I'm charging you to go forth with me to lay claim to these nations and to receive them and to baptize them and teach them all that I've commanded. Now, essentially in all of this, Jesus is calling his apostles, and thus he's calling his church and he's calling us, to join in this special heroic mission that would complete and bring to fulfillment and resolution all of the great stories of the Old Testament. All of them are coming together. It's, it's as if we could say that the, the great epic saga is the story about a prince who slays a dragon and rescues a princess and then has a wedding and then the whole kingdom lives happily ever after. That's, that's not just Prince Charming, that's, that's Jesus' story. And all of the different Old Testament stories fit in different ways, in different parts of this. And what we see in our text here, and this is, pardon the long introduction here, the, the rest of it will go fairly quickly. In this passage, Jesus is drawing on primarily three Old Testament stories that if we can grasp those, we get a, a, a strong sense, a clear sense of the nature of this mission that he's called us to participate in. And we will find that as we put ourselves or as, as, as we are engrafted into that story and become part of that story, as we teach our children that story and help them to see themselves as part of that story, then we also and our children also will develop that same kind of resilience and courage and boldness and conviction to go forth with our mission. So let me, 
mention to you here three key stories that if we, if we listen, I always tell my, my seminary students in Peru that, that one good way to learn how to read the Bible is to watch the movie Shrek. Now, here's what I mean by that. The movie Shrek, as you know, they're just constant allusions to uh, fairy tales and popular culture, popular music, even things out of the news like O.J. Simpson's white bronco being chased down the the highway. All of those kinds of things make their way into Shrek. And you can't fully appreciate the story that's being told if you don't know what those allusions are to. And in the same way, the Bible is like that. It's filled with these allusions back to, old, to, to uh, earlier stories. And to know where the, the overall story is going, we have to grasp those particular ones. So three of them here. First of all, we can see here that um, if, if, if we put our ear down close to the text and listen for the echoes, we can hear a proclamation that Jesus is a new Adam in God's new creation. Now, first of all, we can see this just in the structure of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 starts with this, this phrase, the book of the Genesis... Literally, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That phrase, the book of the Genesis of, comes straight out of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is broken into ten major sections, and that phrase is the structural element for the book of Genesis. And so Matthew is pulling that phrase out, and he's saying, this story that I'm about to tell you, this story of Jesus of Nazareth, is a story about a new Genesis. It's a new beginning. And then we get to the end of, of the, the gospel, and we, we read where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, uh, baptizing, etc. If we listen carefully, we can hear echoes of the story of Adam there. Remember, after God creates Adam and Eve, he gives them what we call the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. In other words, all of the earth, they, he is supposed to be the steward of God's earth, but he is also supposed to bring all of God's creation under the lordship of his heavenly father. And so here, after the resurrection, the resurrection itself elsewhere in the New Testament is portrayed as the beginning of God's new creation. It's not that the new creation will begin someday. The new creation already began. That's why Jesus is referred to as the firstborn from the dead, the beginning of the creation of God. He's the beginning of the new creation of God because he's the firstborn from the dead. And so when Jesus makes this claim about himself, about his authority, and then gives this commission to essentially subdue the nations, bring them to bow the knee to, to him. He's alluding back to Genesis chapter 1. So we see, first of all, that this is a story. The Great Commission is a story about a new Adam in God's new creation. Jesus is that new Adam. It's also a story about a new Joshua in the restoration of God's holy sanctuary. Now, first of all, think about the name Joshua and the name Jesus. 
Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. So we already see just on the surface of it, there's a connection there. But if we go back to Joshua chapter 1, this is shortly after Moses has gathered all of the people on the east side of the Jordan River. He preached the whole book of Deuteronomy to them in, uh, to prepare them to go in and take possession of their inheritance. And, and then after Moses dies, Joshua gathers the people together to prepare them to cross the Jordan River and, and go in and take possession of the land. And God speaks to them through Joshua, and he tells them in the first nine verses there of chapter 1, he repeats this phrase over and over again, be strong and courageous, be bold and courageous, do not fear, over and over again. In other words, it doesn't matter how tall the giants are, it doesn't matter that the walls of the city are up to heaven, it doesn't matter that you're like little grasshoppers in front of these giants, none of that matters. Be strong and bold and courageous. And what's the reason that he gives them why they can be strong and bold and courageous? Because I will be with you. Jesus lifts that verse out of Joshua 1 and attaches it to the Great Commission. Jesus is claiming to be a new Joshua. And he is claiming to lead then the, a, a new uh, a reclaiming of the world so that the whole world then becomes God's holy land. And, and Jesus himself is the new Joshua in the restoration of, of this holy land. There's one other uh, story that we need to see here. And that is that Jesus is also portraying himself as a new Cyrus and the, uh, who brings to an end the exile. Now, who was Cyrus? Uh, the prophet Isaiah mentions Cyrus 200 years before he was born. He mentions him by name and says, Cyrus is the servant of the Lord who will release the captives, set the captives free, and make them return from Babylon. And then, of course, we, we know the story. Israel Instead of being faithful to the Lord, they worshiped other gods, they worshiped idols, they chased after every other false god except for the true God, with the end result being that after prophet after prophet warned them, after Jeremiah pleaded with them with tears over and over again, the people did not turn back, they did not turn away from their evil ways, and so God sent the Babylonians to destroy their city to destroy the temple, and to carry them away into captivity. Now, in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he's still in Jerusalem, but he writes a letter to the first group of captives in Babylon. And he says to them, stop thinking about getting out of Babylon. Stop thinking about going back to Jerusalem. It's not time. God wants you to wait. God wants you to be patient. God wants you to just build a house and raise your kids, keep your head down, maintain a low profile, don't cause any trouble in Babylon, pray for the peace of Babylon, and wait because it's not time yet. The exile is not over. It's not going to be over for 70 years. Now, what we have here in, in these words in the Great Commission is a very close echo of the last verse of the last chapter 
of the last book of the whole Old Testament in Hebrew. Um, another little parenthesis here. The, the order of the books of the Bible, the Old Testament in Hebrew, it starts with Genesis, but it ends not with Malachi. It ends with 2 Chronicles. And the last verse in the last chapter in the last book of the Old Testament shows us King Cyrus. King Cyrus has just conquered the enemy. He has told, now he tells the captives, now they are free. He has freed them from their enemy who held them captive. And he says, the God of heaven and earth has given all authority to me. Go, therefore, go back to Jerusalem, build my city, build my temple. Jesus is intentionally giving us an echo of that charge. But of course, the, the exile that Jesus frees us from is not just the Babylonian exile. Rather, it's the exile of the whole human race from the Garden of Eden. We were in exile. We were in bondage. The evil one had his claws in us and holding us down. But Jesus has conquered the evil one. He has released the captives. And he says the opposite of what Jeremiah said in his letter in chapter 29. He says, now the exile is done. Now your suffering is over. You are free. Now go and build my city and build my holy temple. And of course, the New Testament tells us that the church is that city and that temple that we're building throughout the whole earth. So Jesus is the new Adam in God's new creation. Jesus is the new Joshua for the restoration of the whole world as God's holy sanctuary. And Jesus is the new Cyrus who brings an end to the exile and sets the captives free. Now, here's what this, maybe you're thinking, okay, what does all that have to do with secularization? Well, let's see if I can land this plane now. Our baptism, if we belong to Jesus, our baptism is what engrafts us into his baptism. That's why Matthew presents the two baptism passages. I really am about to land this. Um, so um, so Jesus, in, in a sense, we can say there's only one real Christian baptism. That's Jesus' baptism. All of our baptisms are just our engrafting into his baptism. And what that means is that his identity becomes our identity. That means that his mission becomes our mission. That means that as we face difficulties and struggles and trials and temptations, we should, be, we should be listening to hear the voice of the Father ringing in our ears saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, I love you, and I am well pleased with you. That's something that we should be hearing ringing in our ears every day. But not just that we should also realize that just as his baptism launched his mission and, and launched his vocation, in the same way, our baptism into Christ launches our mission and our vocation in union with him. I'm convinced that one of the, well, let me say this first. Um, I hear young people in, I hear this in Peru, I hear this in the United States over and over again. I hear young people saying, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. 
I just don't know what God wants from me. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I even exist. It's, it's our, our union with Christ, our baptism into his baptism, that gives us our identity and our vocation and our purpose. And I'm convinced that the greatest pastoral task of our day, and I would say parental task as well, the greatest task that we have is to help our people, help our children, discern and develop their sense of vocation and life purpose. Why, why do we have all of these pathologies that we've been talking about? It's because we've got a whole world that has lost its sense of purpose and meaning. But when we understand our baptism, our union with Christ, when we understand how this great commission is just our engrafting into Jesus's mission to renew and restore the world, then all of the sudden, all of our, the different aspects of our callings begin to make sense. God has given us purpose. He's given us meaning. And he's given us a grand and glorious task. It's not going to be easy. It's, a, it's an epic saga filled with epic battles and filled with hardship and suffering and agony at times. But what awaits us at the end is exquisite joy in the kingdom of God. So what does that mean for Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church? I have to say I absolutely love the vision that this church has for missions and I love your vision for Christian education. And I'm convinced that those are not two separate things, especially in our day. A big part of what I'm trying to get at here is that in our day, we have to develop very intentional Christian communities who understand clearly who they are and what their calling is, what their mission is. And part of that is, is actively developing things like a, a Christian school for our kids. But a big part of it as well is learning how to inhabit these grand epic stories, these heroic stories, learning how we are actually, how we become a part of that whole story, because that's what will give us a sense of purpose, of clarity, a sense of confidence and boldness in the face of whatever danger, in the face of whatever difficulty and trial. It's that Knowing that we're a part of that story and that mission and we're following a grand and glorious and amazing Savior, that will remind us that we can't fail. We're following Him and we can't fail. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for including us in this amazing, unbelievable mission to participate with the new Adam in the development of the new creation, to participate with the new Joshua in reclaiming this earth for your name and participating with the new Cyrus, the greater Cyrus, as we go back from exile and begin to rebuild the city of God. Lord, 
Give us clarity on these things. Help us to communicate these things to our children, to build the kind of community that the world will look on and say, that's what I want to be a part of. Help us, O Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.